You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.vin. You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.vin. Good morning, good morning, 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 uh, and a special hello to our online community and also to our church family in Inverurie. It's fantastic to have you with us as well. Uh, my name's Chuck, um, I'm one of the leaders here and uh, I'm married to Taryn who isn't here because she's speaking at our uh, two sites in Ellen and Peterhead this morning, but it's fantastic to be here nonetheless. This is my favorite site. Well, as well as the Inverurian online ones. Uh, um, and obviously I say that wherever I go, but. Uh, okay, let's pray together. And Jesus, you said that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And, and so we're, we're just saying we're hungry this morning to be alive by your word. And we pray that by your spirit, you would just come and make this moment a kind of a holy, sacred moment where your word, your truth kind of cuts through all the different aspects of our lives and brings us hope and courage and strength for the week ahead. Amen. Amen. Well, we're, we're, uh, we're now officially in the run up to Christmas. Hands up if you've already got your Christmas tree up. Hands up if you don't yet have a Christmas tree up. Uh, I grew up in a household where, where the Christmas tree went up on Christmas Eve, and uh, uh, my wife Taryn grew up in a household which, where it went up about, you know, mid-September, and so we've settled on, you know, early December, late November, something like that, and so we are now in the season that Christians all over the world for hundreds and hundreds of years have been calling Advent. Uh, Advent, apparently from the Latin word Adventus, there you go, you can impress your friends with that. Uh, which is an, a Latin translation of the Greek word parousia, which, which is all to do with the coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus. Uh, and in many senses, we as Christians, we, we, we kind of live between the comings, between the arrivals of Jesus, don't we? Between the coming of Jesus in Bethlehem and the coming of Jesus at the end of time. Uh, and we're kind of living with, Advent is about that, moment. It's about thinking about the coming, the arrival of Jesus. It's about journeying with Mary and Joseph towards Bethlehem in all kinds of different ways. And, and apparently, I mean, we're, we're kind of like part of the lunatic fringe, right? So we don't really do the church calendar and all of that kind of stuff. But if you, uh, you know, have ever been around more traditional churches, you might know that there's a set of readings that are available for churches to use at this Advent season. And we just went through and we just picked three uh, as part of our little season that we're doing in Advent. And, and we're going to be reading from Romans chapter 13. So again, this is a, a passage of scripture that is often used at this time of year when we're thinking about the coming of Jesus uh, and, and waiting for Jesus. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 8. It's also going to come up on the screen. 
And this is the Apostle Paul writing to Christians in Rome. And he says this, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be. It's almost like he can't remember all of the Ten Commandments, but he can only remember some of them. Anyway, um, uh, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. Hallelujah. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery and in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And that's our scripture for this morning. When I was about eight or nine years old, I was invited to a a friend's birthday party. And I guess we did all the things that you do at kids' birthday parties, like pass the parcel, musical chairs, what else? Uh, pin the tail on the donkey, maybe, something like that. But to be honest, when you're eight or nine years old, what actually happens at the party is not the reason you go to birthday parties. Why you go to birthday parties when you're eight or nine years old? Because they give you a party bag to take home, and that's the real bonus, right? And I remember this particular party bag contained um, a set of false Dracula teeth, and a tiny little bottle of fake red blood. And I was absolutely thrilled with that. We went home. As soon as I got home, I ran up to my bedroom. I put on my fake teeth. And then I, was, I opened the little bottle of um, fake blood. And I realized there wasn't a mirror in my bedroom. And so I ran to my mum's bedroom because I wanted to get, like, blood running down my chin. And, and as I was running into her bedroom, I tripped over the little metal thing across the side of the doorway there. And I squirted fake blood all up my mum's, my parents' brand new pink patterned wallpaper. And, you know, did I say it was brand new? And so, and so I completely panicked and I ran into the bathroom. I got a sponge full of water. I went back into my mum's bedroom and I'm just kind of like trying to, you know, wipe away the fake blood. And I'm just making initially just a, a pink smear. And then eventually the, the pattern of the wallpaper started to disappear. And there was just like a big white hole in the pink pattern. And, and you know, by this point, I'm absolutely panicked and terrified. And so what did I do? I just put the sponge back in the bathroom and pretended like it hadn't happened. And my mum my saw it later on. And you know there are like different levels of trouble you're in as a kid and there's kind of deep trouble and then there's deep, deep trouble and, and then there's the, the horrible words, just wait till your father gets home. And, and so that was, that was it, it was wait till your father gets home territory. The problem was that my dad was away on business for a full week. And so waiting till your father comes home was like 
the worst week of my life. Because in some ways, it, everything went back to normal, right? You know, we're still eating, we're still drinking, we're still sleeping, we're still pretending like everything's normal and life carries on. But in another sense, I'm waiting for the dreaded day. You know, like something's going to happen at some point in the future and it's not going to be pretty. And the reason I tell that ridiculous story is because, and it's completely true, is because um, we as Christians, we, we, are, we are used to being people who live between the times. You know, in many ways, we are people who recognize that we live between the coming of the kingdom when Jesus is born as a baby in Bethlehem and the coming of the kingdom at the end of time. And we're living in between the comings of Jesus. The French theologian Oscar Kuhlman, uh, who who, um, was a really kind of very formative theologian for our vineyard family in particular. He'd lived during the horrors and the uh, tragedies of the Second World War. And then in about 1950, he writes this book called Christ and Time. And in it, he, he, he basically says, we as Christians, we live as though at war. And we live between two decisive moments. We live between D-Day and V-Day. We live between, um, you know, in one sense, the decisive battle, the decisive victory. The, the, the Allies take hold of the Normandy beaches and, you know, there's this hor- horrific battle. But at the end of that, in many ways, the, 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 the result of the Second World War is decided. And yet, following on from D-Day, there are all these other battles and skirmishes. Some are won by all kinds of, you know, different sides and so on. And it feels like, is, you know, everything's in the balance. But really, it isn't. And eventually, there comes V-Day when everything is decided and world peace is, is, is established. And, and we are people who recognize that we live between the decisive victory of Jesus on the cross. And... Y- and the coming of Jesus at the end of all time. But in between, sometimes it feels like we live in defeat. And sometimes it feels like the enemy wins. Uh, and, and we recognize that time. And, and, and Advent is a time for us to just inhabit that space where we're waiting for the decisive end of the war. And we, we inhabit the space of Yes, sometimes the victory of Jesus, but also unanswered prayer uh, and the waiting and the longing for Jesus. And, and so it's a moment really for us to honestly examine where we are and to think about what am I waiting for? What do I wish that Jesus would do? What areas of my life do I just long for Jesus to arrive in? That's what this Advent season is about. And, and the reason why this passage is often used is because the Apostle Paul is speaking into precisely that thing. He, he says um, in verse 11, he talks about understanding the present time. And the Greek word that's used there that, that is translated as time is not chronos time. It's not like time you read on a watch. It's kairos time. He's talking about understanding this moment in history. This season, this 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 um, uh, this age, the age, understanding the age that we live in is really what he's talking about. It's this existential existential moment of crisis and opportunity and decision between the arrivals, between the comings of Jesus, and he's teaching his friends how to make the most of this moment. You know, when I was a kid, before there was 
Strictly Come Dancing or The X Factor or even Pop Idol, do you remember that? There was a program presented by Bob Monkhouse called Opportunity Knocks. Does anyone remember that? Some of you are like, I remember before Bob Monkhouse used to present Opportunity Knocks, that's a whole other thing. But um, my, my sense is that this passage would teach us that opportunity is knocking at our door. You know, in this season of waiting and longing and hoping, there are a number of different opportunities. And the first one is, it's an opportunity to love differently. It's an opportunity to love differently. It's very easy to assume, isn't it, that love has always been the basic building block of human morality. Do you know, like, everyone on the earth now pretty much just assumes that love is just like a basic human decency. And even someone who's like an avowed atheist would say, no, no, I think love's a really important factor in society. It's easy to assume that that's always been the case, but it absolutely hasn't. It's really only since the coming of Jesus that love was considered an important part of our world. Before that, and it, uh, you know, I don't know whether you've come across the historian Tom Holland, but it's just a fascinating thing that he talks a lot about, that, that actually, um, before love was considered the basic building block of society, it was power. And what he says is, if you think about the Greco-Roman world and, and the kind of world that those guys lived in, it was a brutal and barbaric world to live in. Because, like, let's just think about it. What did they do for fun? They didn't have the X Factor. They didn't have Pop Idol. They had what? Gladiatorial contests where, they, where people just paid to come and watch. In their tens of thousands, you, you came to pay and watch. People just beat each other to death. Or you stop to think about, um, uh, you know, what do we do with people who've offended in our society, who've broken the laws of our society? Well, what we do in Roman society is we torture them and then we crucify them in front of everyone. What do we do with our children that we don't want? Like we, we, we get pregnant, we, you know, wish we hadn't got pregnant. What we do is we give birth to them and then we just leave them for dead. The disabled and the powerless are considered to be uh, like just despised and they're brutalized. And, and slavery is like just a really normal part of human society. It's just like everyone just assumes that that's okay. And so the goal of that society is like, I'm going to achieve more power than I have today. And, and it doesn't matter what cost that comes at. And there isn't, you know, like anyone is saying, well, actually love is like a really important thing. It's like, uh, you know, you've just gone soft. Nobody, least of all those people living in Rome, which is like this dynamic and dangerous city, would have said that love was an important thing in your life. And yet here is Paul, who is really just reiterating the teachings of Jesus kind of casting a vision for an entirely different way of life. Verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. And then in verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so do you see he's casting a vision for a whole new humanity, a group of people who will consider um, like the, the very morality of 
society to be entirely different. He'll live by a totally different set of values. So there's the whole of the Greco-Roman um, world leaning their ladder up against the, 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 the wall of power. And they're saying, I'm just going to keep climbing this ladder of power and trying to become as powerful as I can possibly become at all costs. And there are the Christians saying, I'm not leaning my ladder against that wall. I'm leaning my ladder against the wall of love. And I'm going to try and become more generous and more self-sacrificial and more kind and more gentle and more loving today than I was yesterday. And that's the goal of my life. It's an entirely different set of values. And uh, this passage here in chapter 13, he's, he's really just picking up on a whole section of teaching on love that he, he, he did in, in uh, the second half of chapter 12, where he says in chapter 12, verse 9, love must be sincere. And then he goes on to just uh, list all these different one another's. There are loads and loads of one another's in Romans chapter 12. He says, be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Share what you have with one another. Rejoice with one another, but also mourn with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Live at peace with one another. In other words, the church isn't just, you know, a, a generally kind um, group of people who come together to drink coffee and, and sing songs every Sunday. The church is a community of fierce love. Where, where we, we journey with each other through thick and thin through the blood and sweat and tears of life. And, and, and so, like, if you're fairly new to our church and you're sort of thinking, is this the right church for me? I wonder what criteria you're using. Because lots of people use the, the criteria that are like, you know, what's the, what's the singing like? And, and, you know, praise God, we've got some fantastic singers in our church. But, or, or what's the coffee like? And that, you know, perhaps one of the most important questions in life, right? And, or, or, you know, what's the Bible teaching like? All these kinds of things. Do you know what actually the Bible hardly mentions anything to do with coffee. It's really surprising, actually. It turns out that those criteria are not really uh, how, how the Bible judges what churches are and, and how they get on. The, the Bible really just talks about one criteria, and that's, do these people love each other? And, and so if you're wondering, like, is this the church for me? Then, then like, I would encourage you to lift the bonnet of this people and to discern, like, do these people go to the mat for each other? And, and, like, really, if you're not involved in one another's lives to the degree that you see one another's tears, then you're really just visiting. Because, because the, the Bible's vision for this community is that we would be a people who love one another profoundly and deeply. You may have seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge, uh, which is like a really brutal, one of those brutal war films. Uh, it takes place in, the, in 1945 in the Pacific somewhere. And there's a, a, a soldier called Private Desmond Doss. And, and uh, he, basically he and his, his group are ordered to retreat from the battlefield because it's just, they're losing and it's just brutal. And he's like, I'm not going to leave my friends who have fallen on the battlefield, I'm not going to leave them behind. And so he just, he, he picks one guy up and throws him over his shoulder and carries him through enemy fire and then eventually kind of lowers him down this cliff face on a, on a rope. And then you see him just praying, Lord, please just help me get one more. And then he goes back into the battlefield and he picks up somebody else who's injured and carries them through enemy fire and then lowers them down. And, and it's a true story. This guy, I, they don't know exactly, somewhere between 75 and 100 people 
He's just carried through the battlefield. And that is what we do. That is the Bible's vision for church, that we walk into enemy fire. We, we, we kind of go through the battlefield. We pick one another up and we carry each other home. It's an opportunity to love differently. Secondly, it's an opportunity to think differently. Throughout the Gospels, we, we, I, I just find it quite funny, but you see the, the disciples falling asleep when they're supposed to be awake quite a lot. And, and so, for example, you know, Jesus is glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it's like this really amazing moment, and the Bible specifically records that they're, you know, sleeping. And, uh, or, or, you know, that Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, and, and, you know, he has to go back to them several times to wake them up because they're fast asleep. <clears throat> and the, the gospel writers are trying to tell us way more than just they're sleepy or they're tired. You know, the fact that they're asleep when they're supposed to be awake is really just the gospel writers telling us, hey, these guys are not mentally alert. They're not aware of what's happening around them. They're kind of oblivious to their surroundings. That's really what the gospel writers are trying to tell us. And in ancient Greek thought, this concept of sleep, like being sleepy, being tired, falling asleep, is often used in in Greek philosophy to to talk about people who have unplugged their brains. They're not thinking about what's happening in the world around them. And here is Paul in verse 11. He's telling his friends to wake up from your slumber and to understand the present time. Like, plug your brain back in. And start to understand what's happening in the world around you. My first job was as a uh, paper boy. Do we have any paper deliverers in the room? Um, I remember it being a terrible shock. You know, like, I mean, I was, I've never been a morning person my whole life. And, and so, you, you, you know, instead of having to get up for school at like 7 o'clock, you had to get up for school at 6 o'clock so you could deliver the papers first. It was absolutely horrendous. But the worst part of it was Saturdays, because you never had to get up to, to go to school on Saturdays. But you still had to get up to deliver the papers. And so after about two weeks, I developed the habit of being physically awake, but mentally still asleep. Have you ever done that? Where you're kind of, you know, so I could, I could literally like still walk around half, my eyes half open, kind of pushing papers through front doors and yet still be basically entirely asleep and then get back into bed and just sleep till lunchtime on Saturdays. And that's what I used to do. And the Apostle Paul is saying, whatever you do, you're in Rome, one of the most dangerous cities on earth where all kinds of thought and ideologies are floating all around you. Whatever you do, do not unplug your brain. You know, lots of people think that if you're Christians, you know, to be a Christian, you're supposed to kind of unplug your brain and just kind of believe. And, and Paul's saying, no, 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 you have to do the very opposite. If you're a Christian, you have to think more than everyone else around you. You have to be alert and aware to the ideologies and the thinking that are all around you. And in one sense, your, your mind becomes like a gate where you're deciding of all the different thinking and ideologies that are present in the world around you, you're deciding which ones to take in and to believe for yourself. So for example, in our society today, it's incredibly individualized. And so all of the thinking in the world around us is like, you know, you don't need anyone else. You just need to just kind of turn in on yourself and you need to search for your own feelings and your own desires and you need to follow your own truth. 
And so never mind what, what's kind of objectively true, it's just whatever's true for you, whatever is your truth. You hear people speaking about, I need to speak my truth, as if you're, you know, like, there were all kinds of different kinds of truth. Uh, and so like, it, it's, it's like, follow your own heart, follow your own desires. And so we have a, a decision to make as Christians. Like, are we going to believe that? Is, that? is that thinking that is present in the world all around us, is that going to become our thinking? Or are we going to say, no, 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 my truth is not inside myself. My truth is Jesus, because he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Am I going to look into the scriptures for objective truth that might clash with what I hope to be the truth in my own life? And am I going to turn in on myself and just become isolated and alone and kind of like just self-dependent? Or am I going to do what the Bible teaches us to do, which is to turn outwards and to live for one another? and to serve one another, and to find community together, and to discern what's true together. And that's just the individualism of our society. You know, we could talk about the secularism, or the sexualization of our society, or the consumerism. All of these things, we have to think for ourselves, and be the gate, you know, have a, have a brain, and be alert to the world around us. So in this moment, Paul's saying, understand the present time. What would it take for us to discern between us the ideologies and the thinking of the world all around us? The third thing is it's an opportunity to live differently. He says, verse 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and let us behave decently. The uh, one of my favourite Bible teachers, Simon Ponsonby, he's written a devotional commentary on the book of Romans, which is really excellent. I encourage you to get it. I think it's called God is for You or something like that, big, thick, red book. And in it, he's, he, he looks at this passage that, where, it, where Paul's talking about behaving decently. And he says, the, the, the Greek word for behave is the Greek word peripateo, which from where we get peripatetic, you know, music teachers who travel around. It literally means to walk around. And then the Greek word that's translated as decently kind of means to like appear different. And so he's saying you need to, to walk around in a way that other people can see that you're living differently. That's really what he's saying. We've got to walk around different. And then Paul goes on in verse 13 to paint this picture of, of the way that everyone else is living in the world. And he has these three pairs of behaviours that we would do well to look at. So verse 13 he talks about carousing and drunkenness, sexual immorality and debauchery. And then dissension and jealousy. And I've just been meditating on these six different behaviours. And, and there are a couple of things that occur to me. That the first thing is that, that in one sense this was written 2,000 years ago. But could easily be used to describe Union Street on a Saturday night. You know? Uh, carousing and drunkenness. Sexual immorality and debauchery. And then basically fighting and jealousy. Like that is... That is and so in one sense like... How amazing, you know, what he's basically saying is, like, nothing ever changes, but, but humanity will find ways to enjoy people, with, for people to enjoy themselves that are not good. And so, we, you know, in one sense he's saying, we have a decision to make as Christians, are we going to have fun like everyone else has fun? 
Are we going to live our lives in the way that everyone else lives their lives? Are we going to kind of march to the beat of the same drum? And are we going to entertain ourselves with, you know, like all kinds of things that the Bible says are not good? Uh, And so we just have this decision to make. And Christmas is a good time to make that decision, to be honest. How are we going to live? But, so that's the first thought I had. The second thought was a bit harder because when I started to look at those three pairs of behaviors, there was one behavior that just kept kind of winking at me, you know, like trying to get my attention. And it was the word jealousy. And the reason was because I was kind of thinking like, why is that there? You know, all of these others, carousing, drunkenness, fighting, sexual immorality. It's like, that, you know, those all belong to a particular category. And I found myself saying to the Lord, like, Lord, why is that there? That's not as bad as those ones. And I felt like the Lord said to me, really? Isn't it amazing how we categorize our own sin? And there are particular behaviors or particular habits that we have that we excuse ourselves from. So so we, oh, it's just my little weakness. You know, I'm just tired. Yeah, I know. That's that's just kind of who I am. And there are other things that we'd be horrified if people saw us doing, you know, in church. And I felt like the Lord really challenged me personally, and maybe it's a challenge to you too. Like, are we going to categorize our sin into terrible and tolerable? Or are we just going to allow God to challenge us on all of our behaviors and embrace the call to holiness? I'll finish with this. Um, In the mid-1960s, there was the English Civil War, and uh, it was a really bad time to be an Anglican priest because, you know, the, Oliver Cromwell and his crew, the Puritans, they wanted to get rid of anything that looked, uh, had anything to do with the king. And so the Church of England was one of those things. And, and the Church of England, like people, they went around smashing up baptismal fonts and smashing through stained glass windows and kind of desecra- desecrating churches in all kinds of different ways. They would burn vicarages down or just kick people out of, you know, the vicars out of their homes and, and put them in prison and all these kinds of things. Like it was a terrible time. And, and um, so everyone else is like kind of running away from the Church of England and running away from the church. And uh, there was this one guy who was a kind of a wealthy landowner in a, just an area just beside Leicester called Sir Robert Shirley. And he was like, I'm not allowing this in my patch. And so he says, never mind desecrating churches. We're going to build a church building in this parish right now. And so they start to build this building. It takes years to complete. And whilst it's being completed, you know, he's threatened and threatened and threatened. And eventually he's imprisoned in the Tower of London, uh, uh, where he subsequently dies. And nine years after his death, this church building is finished. And you can go and visit. It's in a place called Staunton Harold near Leicester. Never heard of it. And there's a little plaque uh, in the church. And it says this. When all things sacred were throughout the nation either demolished or profaned, Sir Robert Shirley founded this church, whose singular praise it is to have done the best of things in the worst of times. 
For me, that's the challenge of our passage today. Will we be people who do the best of things in the worst of times? Why don't we stand? And so, Father, we, we want to be people, who, uh, people of the book. We want to be people who live discernibly differently. Please come by your spirit. Please, please come by your spirit right now, your Holy Spirit, and come and make us more holy. Give us the courage to live differently. Give us the thinking to... To, to live differently. Convict us of our sin, O oh God. Search our hearts, O oh God. Come, Spirit of God.